Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. If you're watching this on YouTube, please be sure to smash that like button if you get any form of value from the video. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, I'd really appreciate a five-star review. Now, as always, we've got an absolutely fantastic guest here today, a good friend of mine too, Lou. It's great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me, mate. I really appreciate this. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So, Lou, for those out there who don't know who you are, if you could tell us in two minutes or less who you are, what you do, and some of your career highlights. Oh, I need to get my timer out, don't I? Name Lewis Kwachi. I'm the UK sales director for a company called Reward Gateway. Reward Gateway is a SaaS technology business, works within employee engagement, so recognition, employee benefits, employee communications. So that's a big part of actually what I've been doing the last seven, eight years. It's been a fun journey. But before that, I used to do track, I used to do sports, used to do football, and that was my big career. Everything I was doing up until that point was about performance, elite level sport. And then I ruptured two Achilles tendons when I was 21 years old. Not fun. Doing one is tough. Doing two, it's a changer. So that was the end of any sporting aspiration I had. So then that's when the whole business thing started. Managed the biggest gym in London at the age of 21, which was also quite fun because a 21-year-old being a general manager of a 6,000-member club when all the PTs and the management team were about 38, 37, very difficult. But it taught me a lot of lessons in my career. And then, of course, I found my way through tech, through a company called Virgin Active. And today, I'm here at Reward Gateway having the time of my life. Fantastic. I mean, what a story. There's a lot to unpack in that. And I know the athletic career runs in the family as well. So mm. why don't we start with the earlier life, right? And some of the sure. earlier days uh, there, Lou. So just tell us a bit about maybe some of your upbringing and mm. how you found your way into uh, an athletic career. Yeah, no problem at all. Working working has just been something that's been so hard in life for just people with my background, people that have come from where I've come from. So my life started in a place called Chingford Hall Estate. It's East London. It is a it was a tough place to grow up. And being from that arena, being in that world, you learn so many lessons. You learn so many lessons. You learn a lot of things not to do, by the way. That's a big one. But at the same time, you learn about, you know, wanting to be amazing, wanting to be better than where the kind of area and what you you know, what people perceive you to be. So that's been a big part of, you know, my mentality going forward. But early doors, mother and father are from a country called Ghana in West Africa wonderful place. I am, of course, biased, um, but Ghana is a wonderful people. Um, integrity, honour, these are big values for people from, those, from that country. So mother and father came to the UK in the 80s. They've got um, three children. I am the middle. I have no middle child type of um, you know, scenarios anyway. Everyone always jokes about that. I've got two wonderful sisters, an older one and a younger one. We'll talk about them in a little bit as well because they're both amazing. And everything has just been about, you know, being better, being the best, working hard, you know, taking the most from opportunities that arise in life. And I guess sport was a good way of doing that. Love sport in school. And, you know, when you're in school, everyone always loves the sporty kids, don't they? The, the sport child, the person playing football, the person playing basketball. And that's why I kind of hung my hat on. And it was amazing because when it came to football, had a great career in there. Didn't make it to the academy, which is a sad thing. I would love to have been Ronaldo or, or one of those type of guys. But I did do really well at basketball. So I made it to the England um, reserve team under 18 men. That was fantastic. Pulled a hamstring. There's a theme here. We'll get into that a little bit. Pulled a really bad hamstring, actually. So I wasn't able to go to the tournaments. But then I moved across to athletics. And athletics has always been something quite powerful in my family. So my older sister, Jeanette Kwachi, she's ex-Olympian. She's now a TV presenter on BBC, Sky Sports. You probably would have seen her at um, the Winter Winter Olympics doing the presenting gig over there. You know, she's always been in the arena. And a um, really funny story. I was seen chasing a bus one day. 
<laughs> I was seen chasing the bus by my sister and her friend who was also in athletics. And I was running so fast that people had actually stopped on either side of the road and actually had spoken to my sister and her friend and said, who is that kid? What's, what's happened here? And then the next thing that happened, they put me in a pair of spikes and I was running at the um, South of England Championships a weeks later, which I, which I finished sixth, never training a day in my life. That season progressed and so many amazing things happened, but I've always been really blessed to, you know, be quite sporty and do quite well in sport. Wow. I mean, again, this story <laughs> is just going from uh, good to great. Really, really insightful, right? And the fact that it seems to run in the family, we're starting to pull up on some themes here. So one of the things I'm curious to understand more about with you, Lou, is in all of that athletic flair that you had, how much of it you just be believe to be a, a God-given talent, right? Something from birth versus actually just hard work, grind, determination, putting in the hard yards. Because in that story you just told about the bus, it sounds like you just had something about you so can you just give us where was that differential versus you know natural talent versus you just actually putting in the hard yards to become great in those fields you said something good there about being good to great you know and sometimes when I look at sport in particular and we can actually address this in business too you can be good you can be quite naturally good at certain things you can be good at holding attention you could be a good wordsmith you can be good at many many things but if you want to become great there's an element of hard work that needs to go within that and I think a lot of people have the good element they do there's some, there's some good people doing some good things in the world from a multitude of industries. But that when it comes to being great, you have to put in the work. You have to be a student of the game in so many different senses. And when it came to sports and when it came to athletics, that's something I found, actually. Because, yes, I was good. Yes, I got to run, you know, various arenas. I got to go to different countries. I did so many amazing things. But in order to become great... That's something I learned when I went to a place called Loughborough University. So Loughborough University, for university, for anyone who doesn't know, is like the elite sports uni in Europe. It's amazing. Anything you need or want is there at the, you know, the drop of a hat. It's incredible. Masseuse, physios, plunge pools, tracks, gyms, anything you need is right there. And that's a place where I really learned the difference between, okay, God-given talent can be good. Oh, you want to be amazing, you want to be great, you got to put in the graft. And what was great again about Loughborough is that I went to a coach called Nick Dakin. So Nick Dakin, he ran the elite 400 meter squad and he introduced me to amazing people like Martin Rooney, Graham Hedman, David Gillick. You know, these are international athletes of the highest caliber. And there was Lewis, the boy who'd been running for a bus the year before, training with these elite top athletes every single day, watching their nutrition, watching their core, you know, core training. You know, it's not just doing sit-ups, it's actually, you know, strengthening that entire midsection and becoming great at what you do. And I was able to see all the intricacies of what makes a great athlete. So to answer your question, of course, you can be good with natural talent, but if you want to be like that, you want to be like them, you want to reach those levels, you've got to put in the graft. You've got to put in that extra work. It's really fascinating just hearing you talk about that. And, you know, as we're going to come on to sales and some of the things that, that talking a bit more about your career, right? And I, I'm sure that a lot of this has fed into your your excellence as your career has scaled as well. So really curious about unpacking some of that. Let's fast forward to when you got injured, because the reality is, is that must have been one of the hardest times of your life. I can only assume, right? You yeah. seem like you had all of this talent, all of this momentum, and then all of a sudden the train comes to a halt. So bring us into that moment, Lou. It's a, it's a really good junction, actually, in life. I can say that now, but at the time I can look back and say there was an element of depression. There was an element of mental health, you know, my mental health completely <clears throat> plummeted it was really difficult you have to imagine I was a young man had left London East London Chingford Hall Estate going up to uh, Loughborough, Loughborough University 
enjoying my life, enjoying being a student as well. Got a scholarship to go there. And, you know, we broke the university record earlier in the season. I'd really come into my own. Everyone was really excited about this new protege that I had been working with Nick Dakin and Martin Rooney. And what's this kid going to do? Jeanette's little brother. What's he going to do? Got to the university championships. Um, I jogged my heat, left the entire field behind me. I felt really confident. Had those international athletes in that particular heat. Got to the semi-final and I was racing one of my older training partners, a guy called Simeon Williamson. So Simeon, he's fantastic. He, you know, he won the British Championships a couple of years later. He's an, almost a sub-10 runner. He was great. And we had gone around the bend in the semi-final and I'd taken him. I was, I was gone. And to think to myself, wow, this guy is one of the best 100-meter runners in the country in a 200-meter race. I've already gone past him on the bend. And I remember coming around the bend in the lead thinking, I'm in absolute tip-top shape. This is going to be amazing got to about 120 meters down the track and I remember everyone coming next to me and I was thinking no the, the strongest part of my race is the last 80 meters what's happening here why is everyone coming back on me before I knew it I was flying in the sky I heard a gunshot and I was lying on the floor next thing I knew I was in the hospital on a hospital bed with my coach and training partners around me but it was filmed so watching the film what had happened I'd come around the bend and my Achilles tendon had snapped and my body was slowing itself down in order to prepare me for, of course, going up and going down. The gunshot was the Achilles tendon, Achilles tendon going bang. Heartbreak. It was terrible. So I sat in hospital for a good couple of days. Everyone's flying up and down to come and see me. That means you're missing a good year of your career. Achilles tendons back then was almost like a, it was a kiss of death for your career. And I remember going back and my housemates and my training partners were looking at me. And they're looking at you thinking... You know, you can see the sadness in their eyes, but they're trying to be buoyant for you. It was horrible. That that next year, it was the lowest I've ever been. It was so tough. Yes, me. I uh, could feel every word, right? <laughs> and I uh, was just visualizing literally you in that particular moment. And I can't imagine, you know, what that experience must have been like. You know, the natural question is, right, how did you get from that point to actually, I guess, a baseline of, okay, I now need to get my life back on track. I almost want to take it piecemeal before you got to a point where, you know, you, you started taking on that bigger roles and responsibility. Mm. How did you actually just get your mind to a baseline of, okay, let me figure this thing out. How do I find a way forward now? I would love for this bit to be a fairy tale, but it's actually further into a, a deeper story, which is tough. So I had a year of great physio. My, my masseuse was fantastic. My coaches were great. Strength and conditioning got everything back. And they actually gave me the belief and hope that I could, you know, make a career again from this. So what actually did happen was within a year, I was running again. I was running again. I was actually back on track. Um, I had flown off to Amsterdam. I came full for the Amsterdam Grand Prix. I picked up some prize money. I felt really good about myself. I was training again with these elite athletes, holding my own in training, which, you know, I wasn't expected to do after an Achilles tendon was gone. And then we got to um, the Loughborough International and we had our last training session before the big race. So I said, okay, guys, I'm going to do, I'm going to do another 400 meters on this one here. I'm really going to go for it in this. And we're doing our final, final couple um, reps on the training session. And I'm going on my favorite bend again. You know, I've got my confidence back. I had done all the work. I'd done everything I possibly could do not to injure that Achilles tendon. So we've come around the bend again. And again, I'm, I'm beating some world-class runners. There's a guy called Chris Clark, who's a fantastic runner. You know, I've taken him on. I've taken Graham Hedman on. I've taken some good people feeling great. Come around the bend. But this time my hamstring felt really tight in the right-hand side. And as I've gone to reach for my hamstring, I've popped up in the air again. And you've also heard a bang. The right Achilles tendon had now popped and had also torn my hamstring 
three centimeters on the right hand side on the floor. This time I didn't black out. This time I was on the floor screaming, why me? Why me? And everyone again gathered, sad. Here. Lou had worked so hard to come back from the first setback, had gone to international races, was looking formidable again, potentially going to live up to his talent. And then he gets the kiss of death on the other side, plus a hamstring for good measure. Going back in, didn't cry, just sat there, saw in my Achilles tendon and a big gap between the ankle and the area. My hamstring was, of course, zinging horribly. What can you do? And I called my mum. I said, mum, I'm done. She goes, no, I understand. So I finished my exams. I left Loughborough and I came back to London. I tried to train again, tried to recover because you say you're done, but you're never really done, you know, never really done. But then I got to, a, got to a race. I was training with a guy called Daniel Plummer. Daniel Plummer, great runner, great coach as well. He was put me on sessions with Dwayne Chambers, which a lot of people would know. So I was training in that group. It was fantastic. But got to that race again, my first race back from the second Achilles and hamstring. And I ran a hundred meters race. And I'd never run so slow in my life. And I crossed the, crossed the line. I looked up at Daniel. Daniel looked up at me. He goes, Luke, we're going to go again. I said, Daniel, the head's gone. I can't do this anymore. And that was the end of that athletics life for me. Wow. Having to take a moment, right? Just listening to this story, Lou. Uh, again, feeling every part of it really in reality. And I think it says a lot to me now when I know the sales leader you've become, how much of this story and your ability to bounce back from these setbacks has probably played an instrumental role in the sales leader that you become and the sales professional you become. So again, really looking forward to you unpacking some of that. I don't want to skip the, the the time that you spent, I believe it was pure gym and as a general manager mm -hmm. and doing all of that at, at quite a young age, right? In essence, leading a team, leading a company. So help us understand how you, one, got that role and really what that whole experience was like being such a, a young talent, leading people older than you in such a big business unit. You know, we can wrap that kind of time into a four-year period of me working in gyms. So naturally the sporting career is over what's the next logical thing I'm going to do? I'm going to find something involved in health and fitness. And Virgin Active was a fantastic organization that took me on board. So working at Virgin, they have a really strong training program, early doors, inductions, learning, continuous learning. It was all given at Virgin Active. So I went in as a membership consultant. So I was selling gym memberships to people. And I remember selling a gym membership um, membership to um, Damien Lewis, the actor. And I didn't know who he was. So he's walked into the gym. Everyone's like, losing themselves are thinking, oh, there's just this random ginger man. Let me go and show him around the gym. And I've taken him around the gym and I met, I met his late wife as well. And, you know, we had a good conversation. I said, what do you do for a living? He goes, oh, well, I just travel the world. And I, I took him before face value. Um, and then when he left the gym, everyone's like, Lou, do you really know who that was? I said, I haven't got a clue who that was. But that was just my ignorance to whatever world that was. My job back then was to sell gym memberships. And I became very good at it because of my sporting history, my understanding of the body and what it means. And of course, my backstory, it was, it was an easy win for me. And naturally, over that three-year period at Virgin, I became the leading sales consultant across the UK, which was amazing. Won national awards. I changed the kind of process in the different gyms I worked in, in Holloway. That was then moved to another one called Mayfair. So working in the Mayfair gym is a very, very different kind of experience from in Holloway. And in Mayfair, you met really high net worth individuals that could probably afford a gym membership at a drop of a hat. You know, it's incredible how much money the people had there. And again, I was the leading consultant there, which naturally made me become a manager for the organization. 
And I broke numerous records as a manager. And I was, what, 21, 22, 23? I was, very, I was still very young. And I led team after team to success. I left Virgin after a while and then moved, of course, to Pure Gym. The COO at the time, Jax De Bruin, amazing man, great leader as well, by the way. He asked me to come across and work with him at Pure Gym. So I ran the Oval Gym way back when, when it was the biggest one in London. And yeah, I learned so much there. Wow. I, I think in your story, Lou, it talks a lot to, well, I often talk about just passion, drive, hunger, having that bit between your teeth, maybe chip on your shoulder. Mm. And I can only imagine after everything you went through in that moment when you said, I'm done, and then you, you eventually bounce back. I can only imagine you had that, that chip on your shoulder mentality, like, I've got to get out here and start making something happen in my life. And I think your progression over those years, it says a lot about the mentality you must have had to just go out there and make it happen, take on that level of responsibility at that time. And I think, you know, one of the key messages to other people out there is just really being bold, right? Making sure that you've got some kind of vision and mission in what you're doing, right? Maybe having that chip on your shoulder mentality, because sometimes that is the thing that allows you to go and drive forward and make some amazing things happen. So we've got to now fast forward to getting into your sales career. So you've come from now selling gym memberships, doing it everywhere from Mayfair to, you know, I'm sure many other different areas. How did you then go from that and start transitioning into more of the corporate world at that point? It's a great story, this actually. Um, I remember going to the gym one day and looking around and thinking, I, I want more. I want more. I've done the sales leader bits in the gym. I've done the leading consultant bit in the gym. I've done the general manager piece now. Am I going to be doing this now until I'm 50, 60 years old? I need more. So I spoke with the regional manager at the time. He was a quite a difficult character, I can't deny it. And he actually taught me a lot about management, probably more so things I shouldn't do, but he still taught me a lot. And what was really interesting and great about him, actually, he was very forthright when he said something and you understood it. And I took that clarity and clear communication from him. I took it really, really, I took it to heart because it's something you need to do as a leader, regardless of if you like someone or not. Having clear and concise communication is one of the biggest things. So I spoke with him. I decided that I wanted to try and move on to pastures. I knew he wanted me to stay because, of course, I had big responsibility. But I had to make a decision that was best for me in the end of my career. You know, we shook hands at the end and I moved off. And I actually went to go and work as a broker, which was just completely left field. Because what I'd always seen being from a place called Chinkford, everyone worked in Liverpool Street. And working in Liverpool Street, you worked in the financial sector. And if you worked in the financial sector, you could be a stockbroker and the rest of it. So I found the weirdest boiler room type job you can ever imagine. I lasted a week, but I sat in this boiler room making call after call after call, wearing suits, wearing big watches. Mine was fake, as was everyone else's in the room, by the way. But big watches, big suits, shined shoes, making cold call after cold call, 150 every single day manager in a glass room looking out dialing in to listen to people's calls morning stand-ups where you're talking about how many dials how much you closed and by the way there was no basic salary it was all commission only at this time my ex-wife at the time actually she was pregnant with our child so you can only imagine what kind of graft i had to put in to try and you know get to this position of what am i going to do how am i going to manage this one week i said i'm not doing this anymore i reached out to an old friend who had become the managing director at a company called Reward Gateway. He said, Lou, what are you doing now? I said, oh, I'm just having the time of my life being a broker, you know? I'm having the time of my life. But if you've got anything, please just consider me. So he's like, Lou, I've got, I'm, I'm making some changes at Reward Gateway. And I've got a role I think will suit you really well. I would love you to come along. And that was the transition into more of the corporate world. Wow. 
Wow. It's, I, I remember you're taking me back a bit to <laughs> when you talk about these boiler room environments. And I think we've all been there at some point, right, in terms of, you know, these types of roles where it's just all about hustle, making the dials, right? Less about sales engagement tools and the latest and greatest tech to help you get that edge. It was just absolute grind, right? Absolute graft. Curious to get your perspective on how much of that and, you know, combining that with some of your background has been instrumental as you took that step into corporate, because I can certainly say that it's been one of the best experiences I've had in terms of, I don't want to say everything else felt easy after that, but it doesn't get much more difficult in a certain way. So for you, you know, how do you, when you reflect on those experiences, how much of them play a role in the loo that we look at today? It's fundamentals, fundamentals. I can look back now and say that these were building blocks of who I am today doing 150 dials, learning resilience, learning about rejection, learning how to circumvent conversations. You know, it's really, really important that people learn these skills. And what I found, especially in, in more recent years, being a leader, being a manager, you know, seeing things from a different perspective, a lot of people have not done the hard yards. And they look at me, oh, Lou, you're an old man now talking about hard yards. And I'm not, no, g- genuinely, I'm not, actually, I'm technically not an old man. I'm still quite young, but I had to put in the hard yards. And it brings me all the way back to my sporting career. And again, just the fundamentals, the foundations. If you don't do the hard yards, you may be good, but how are you going to be great? How are you going to be great? What are you going to do to build more? You can't, you can't build on sand. It's very, well, you, you technically can, but it's very difficult to build on sand. But if you have a solid foundation, which is why I got from my sporting career, from the boiler room, from Virgin, from Pure Gym, they gave me the foundations I'm able to build from. And it's critical. It's actually critical to being great. Absolutely. No, it makes a ton of sense. Now, Lou, you've been at your current company a long time, yeah. right? And when you look at the average tenure now, not only in sales companies, but especially in tech companies, you're lucky or most companies are lucky if they get a couple of years out of someone nowadays, right? But you're, I believe, eight years yeah. plus or around that? Eight years next week. Right. Well, uh, congratulations. Thank- it's a long time. Right. And it seems like you continue to feel really engaged and, and, and really happy and continue to progress massively. So one, why have you stayed in the same organization for as long as you have? And just talk to us about your progression path and some of your experiences going from an individual contributor into a leadership role as well. Nice. Again, another interesting journey. So when I spoke to the managing director at the time, his name was Joe Gaunt. He's a, he's a great leader. And I like Joe. I've got a lot of time for Joe. And I saw him very recently. And he's, he's laughing at my progression at Reward Gateway because I started the role as a researcher. That was my first job at Reward Gateway eight years ago. I walked in the door. They had split the sales process into three different roles. So typically, we all know there's a business development manager or an AE, okay? And they was responsible for sourcing the business, hunting the business, closing the business. And the one of the sales leaders at the time, a lady named Shelley Lavery, had said, you know what, we need to chop this up. There's specialists within that. So when I spoke with Joe, Joe said, Lou, you can do any one of these three roles. But from me knowing you, I would love for you to look at the researcher role and build that for me. I looked at Joe and I said, Joe, but that one earns the least money. I want to do that one. He goes, Lou, I want you to do this. Just trust in me. And I thought, you're trying to save some money here. But remember, I was desperate to get out of the boiler room. I said, Joe, I'm going to trust you. Thank God I did. Because what that allowed me to do was become the first researcher. And I was able to build a strategy for sourcing business, understanding the ideal client profile. This is a good while before you've seen a lot of the new things that have come out. A lot of it was built on Aaron Ross's, you know, predictable revenue type, type strategy. And I built the whole infrastructure 
of the machine we now have today that shows us how to find the low-hanging fruit across Reward Gateway in our different businesses across Australia, US, and the UK. And I did that research role for a year, but very ambitious man I am, of course. Moved on to become the senior and lead the other researchers, the manager for that squad. Then, of course, the sales in me, I knew I could do more. I was creating and changing the culture in the way that we did sales. We'd gone from an organization that was doing 10% outbound sales to 50 to 60% outbound sales without losing our inbound. So you can imagine what type of revenue growth that was starting to show. I became the SMB sales manager, led an SMB team. Then we really needed to improve the way that we built on the ideal client profile. How do we maximize on those businesses? So Shelly then moved me to the head of sales development. So I became responsible for all of the SDRs, all of the researchers creating pipeline, incredible record growth during that period. Couple of years at that, ambitious man again, I needed to stretch my wings. And I said to Reward Gateway, hey team, um, an organization have offered me a position, a very senior position. Uh, I think I'm gonna take it. The CEO said, oh, congratulations on the offer. And looked at me like this, like you and I are looking at each other now. I said, no, didn't say another word. I was like, oh, brilliant. Okay. Um, I guess I'll be handed it by notice. He goes, okay. Long and behold, he made some structural changes within the organization, promoted our, our, new, our new VP of sales, which is a great leader. I'm actually my current boss, Kylie Green. And they moved me into a director of growth strategy role. More of a holding place now I come to understand because the next role became the UK sales director. And good for them and good for myself. And we've taken our organization on a 200% growth journey since I've been in charge. So it's all worked out in the end. But the reason I've been at that organization is because they really believe what they do. You know, it's part of our DNA. I'm even saying R. It's part of what we do on a day-to-day basis. You know, we are here to make the world a better place to work. So if if that's your mission as an organization, you can only imagine what it's like to work for a company like that. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, around missions and values. I say purpose, mission, values. These are these are critical things. And the purpose of my organization is something that closely aligns to me. The mission of my organization, I believe in wholeheartedly, even if I wasn't at Reward Gateway. How do you ever argue about making the world a better place to work? It's impossible. And then you have the values that underpin all of that. We've got eight values at the organization. My favorite value is be human because I'm a very authentic leader. I try to just be myself. I may not be the most articulate sometimes. I may be quite raw in the way I deliver information, but I'm always myself. And this organization allows me to be my best version of me, which then, of course, allows them to achieve 200% growth in a certain amount of time. So it's a win-win situation. So hopefully that answers your question around why I'm still there. It does, absolutely. And I think it says a ton at that last sentence you just said, where it's win-win, right? The, the, the company has clearly invested a ton in you right from day one. And equally, you've invested a ton vice versa in terms of your effort, your energy, and the transformation that you've been able to drive. And I think that's a great example of making a really good career decision, even if it wasn't that clear at day one. But equally, an organization recognizing the talent they have in front of them and making sure that you're not boxed in in any fashion and you're in a position where you can grow and flourish and make the best possible contributions to them as well. So it's a great story, I think, for both candidates and also companies to think about. Now, as you've gone through this journey as a leader, right, and you were a leader from a young age, ultimately, Lou, what are some of the characteristics and the behaviors and the things that are top of mind for you when you think about what actually goes into being an elite level leader? Honesty, honesty. The world is a very difficult place. You don't need to make it any more difficult than it already is. And when you're a leader, one thing I've always appreciated in great leaders that have worked with me or what I've liked to do with my team 
is be as honest as I possibly can as early as I can. Of course, there are business you know, scenarios in which you can't give complete transparency on everything that goes on. We are, every, everyone understands that. But when you can be honest, you tell the truth and you tell it to your team and you look them in the eye and you explain why a situation may be amazing or why it might not be so great. And they will appreciate that because hopefully they will see, you know, the integrity and they will have trust in you when you deliver that honesty. And I think a lot of organizations, a lot of managers I've seen always worry about, you know, information equity. How much information can I really give to that person or how much can I give there? My policy is I tell everyone whatever I can as soon as I can do it, because hopefully then they trust in me. And in order to be a great leader, in order to lead troops into battle half the time, you know, then which, which it, it can be technically, it is really, really important for them to feel the trust within me so we can go forward. And that's something I've learned. And I guess through sport as well, and being a leader, being a coach and being a manager, all the things that leaders should be, I've also learned from my previous coaches that not everyone is made equal. It would be impossible for Daniel Plummer to train Lewis Quarchi the same way he trained Dwayne Chambers. It would be impossible for Nick Dakin to train Martin Rooney, David Gillick, Graham Hedman the same way they trained Lewis Quarchi or vice versa, any other combination of that. You can't. But guess what? By taking time, understanding, listening, just seeing the nuances in human beings, you're able to get a level of performance from everyone. There's an analogy I like to use, especially in the 100 meters. There's a time of 9.77 seconds in the 100 meter race that was a world record for a long time. You had people like Safa Powell, Usain Bolt, Tyson Gay, Johan Blake, even people before, after them, Tim Montgomery, who do get busted for drugs, are probably a bad example. But you've got a few of these individuals that have run the exact same time. Not one of those individuals I've just mentioned is the same human being yet they've ran that specific time in a 100-meter race. What does that mean? They've all come from different places, different environments, different training regimes, but they've all run the same time. None of these fingers are made equal. So it's the manager, the leader's job to understand how to get people to their optimum place. And that's the attitude, that's the mindset I take going into leadership, going into coaching. That's the way I like to think. I love the athletic analogies here as well. I think it really helps piece all of it together. Naturally, the the leaders are one half of the equation. The other half are, you know, the the sales professionals or, you know, the, the, the people that are out there on the field, right, running some of those hard yards as well. So the question in all of that is when you look at the behaviors, the traits and the characteristics of the elite level, you know, sales professionals across your teams, what are some of the things that have stood out to you both, you know, past and present? There's a word called grit I like to use. Grit is a, it's a, it's a tough word, but it goes to show in so many different individuals. You don't have to be from a council estate in East London, or you don't have to be from Eton School. You could Anyone can have grit. And that's why I like the term, because those individuals who do step up, who do want to go for it, they have that extra special grit. And it's the same with the athletes, the same with sports people. Some people can be good but you need some of that grit to become great. Yeah. Sometimes you may call it the monkey on the shoulder as well. You know, I know, I think I've got a bit of it. I've got nothing to prove to anyone apart from myself, but that allows me to keep on pushing, do more, do more, learn more, want to achieve more. And that grit is the thing I've seen across all organizations, across all industries, whether it's Virgin, Pure Gym, the Boiler Room, <laughs> Reward Gateway, or any of the consultancy I currently do, seeing individuals with that grit wanting to do something and that takes them to the next level every single time anyone can go away and do a sales course you can do that 
but you have to throw yourself into that sales course. You have to go for that sales course. Anyone can go and run 400 meters, but you have to throw yourself into it. You have to want to be great at it. And that's the one bit, that one piece of connection I've seen across all the best performers I've ever seen. Yeah, I uh, completely agree with you on that one. There's di- different words to sometimes phrase the same mm. type of thing, right? But it's it's having that bit about you ultimately, as you like to frame it, grit, where, you know, I've seen some people come into organizations, right? Uh, SDRs, for example, where they've been able to come in and within two days, knowing nothing about the company, just book 10, 20 meetings. And then you see the same other people come in and they're about four weeks in still planning out their attack plan. And that comes down to, I think, the way you define and describe grit, right? And I just see these people as people that are just truly hungry, truly driven, right? And have a level of discipline about this is the outcome I want to drive. I know this is what it's going to take. And I'm just absolutely getting up each day and I'm just going to make it happen, right? No excuses. I'm going to make it happen. And we talk about sometimes the the added complexity or the science of selling and the systems and the processes. But the reality is, is if you don't have the bit that we're talking about here, that passion, that energy, that drive, the systems are a waste of time, right? They're not going to work. They're not actually going to drive anything if you're not actually a person who wants to take that information and put that theory into action. Is that something you'd agree with? I love that because it's the truth. And the job as a leader is to create this machine, okay? The machine of your sales organization, your process, that's, that's the job of the leader. But then the people, your most important asset, and they are, they're throwing the coal on the machine. Yeah. They're, they're the ones they're, they're, they're greasy. They're doing all the work. They are really doing all the work. So you need people who are going to want to do it. There's no point building this beautiful machine, this beautiful process. If you've not got the people with you to make that thing do what it needs to do. And that's exactly it. And I guess I can attribute some of the success in recent years at Reward Gateway since I took the role of yes, build some machine. Did we have the right people putting the coal in? Did we have the right people managing and maintaining it? Potentially not. Potentially not, but you reinvest in these individuals. You show them how important they actually are. And they are. Everyone in my team knows how important they are to me. Even when they leave, they'll sit with me and we'll I'll help them negotiate their next salary of where they're looking to go. I will know before they even hand in a notice to the wider company who's going where and why they're going. I know it all. It's a trust. So having those people in my team with that bit of grit, with that belief, with the trust, it makes the machine fly. And this is exactly what's happened in recent years, especially the pandemic. We looked after our people so well during the pandemic and they've looked after the company in equal return. Absolutely. So it's a great analogy and a really interesting way of of breaking things down. I want to shift topics with you here, Lou, slightly Mm -hmm. to, you know, looking at you as a sales leader and we've had the opportunity to connect offline, which which has been amazing. And you've certainly been a a massive help for me in more ways than, than even you would know is, you know, being from underrepresented backgrounds, right, and trying to grow a sales career, th- there's not many sales leaders that that look like you, right? That's just the reality of it. And so with all of that said, Lou, I'm just curious to get your own thoughts and reflections and impressions of what that experience has been like building and scaling a, a software sales career, you know, as a person of color, what, what that has meant for you, what it means to you today, and if there's been any things that really stand out about your journey that you'd like to share out there with others. I think as as a person of colour, as, as a black man, the climate has been quite difficult the last couple of years. I'm not going to labour points that, we, you know, we would have seen over news and other things that have been happening since Rodney King, even way back before we, you know, is even born. There's no point labouring on that stuff, but it's, it's a difficult scenario. It's a difficult climate. And being a black sales leader, 
I take a lot of pride in that. But what I also hope for is that my team don't look at me as, oh, he's the Black South's leader. It's Lou. It's Lou. It's Lou with honesty. It's Lou with integrity. It's Lou. It's Lou who's really good at his job. And don't get me wrong, there are not a lot of South leaders, you're right, they don't look like me. They don't sound like me. They don't talk the way I talk. They're probably about 15 or 20 years older than I currently am. I'm more than aware of that. And I've become aware of it when I go out with my team or I go to meetings and then we'll sit in a board pitch or we'll sit in a meeting and everyone's like, oh, this is my sales director, Lewis. Everyone's like, it's 2022. But people are still like, oh, or if I'm on the phone or we're on a Zoom call, oh, this is our director, Lewis. Oh. And it takes a certain type of resilience. It takes a certain type of confidence to understand that someone's reaction or someone's perception or potentially prejudice, that's their issue. Because me as an individual, I'm bloody good at what I do. I know my job. My people know who I am. My results speak for themselves. So any type of perception or prejudice, we leave that over there because I'm Lewis and I am the sales director and my team are fantastic. So you deal with what's in front of you. And it's been a really interesting learning, big, big journey, kind of getting to that confidence level. A lot of it comes from my results from not only sport, but the companies I worked with previously, the results I'm currently, a lot of it comes from that, but you do have to be resilient. And I think a big lesson for me to potentially share, because I'd love to see more leaders that look like me come from where I've come from. And of course, I have a young, I have a young man, my boy's eight years old. So I want him to see this journey too and understand it can be done. The biggest learning is making intelligent choices of where you're going. So of course, I was very lucky to pick up the phone to Joe Gaunt, who was the managing director and say, hey, Lucia, what you got for me? But I did that for a reason, because I knew he was the leader that understood and didn't pay no mind to those types of prejudices or types of issues. He just knew talented individual could do a job. Let's get him in. And I think a lot of people from underrepresented backgrounds need to pay attention to the organizations they're joining. Why am I joining that company? What is that company doing for people who potentially look like me? What journeys have people that look like me been on within those companies? Because everyone could, hey, we need five black people today. Let's go and get them, recruiter. And you can bring in five black people and they may be, you never know, they could be any role. But what is their journey? What's their arc been? And that's the bit of advice I kind of want to give to young, especially black or underrepresented groups when they're starting their careers. Look at these organizations, see what they're doing, understand their leadership team understand their mission, understand their values. How does that align to what you want to do? Because guess what? When you go into those companies, they're going to support you because they've got a track history of doing it. Some organizations will drag you in, they promise you the world, promise you the absolute world. They've got no track history of doing it, but we're going to do it from today because you've joined us. Hey, let's be honest here. I've never seen it before. Are you going to do it? Or are you going to see in three months time, oh, you're a top biller. We want you to stay. The amount of great underrepresented talent I've seen go into a job, been top biller, great results, begging, asking, can I have an opportunity? Can I be a leader? Can I be a manager? Can I do this? Can I take this responsibility? Oh, no, 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 no. Listen, you're delivering a million pounds, right? Keep on delivering a million pounds and you'll, you'll be okay. It's not in some businesses' interest to move them away from that bottom line contribution. It's, sometimes it's not, but... Me as a leader, organizations I try to work with, I'll be around. If one of my million pound billers says, Lou, I want to be a manager tomorrow. That's important. That's important. The million pounds will get somewhere else. We'll train and we'll develop someone else into that role. If that's your goal, let's go and do it. And a lot of people don't make that decision. 
they don't make the decision and they get stuck and it builds resentment on their side. It builds anxiety on the business side. And then you've got a three to six month ticking bomb before everything just blows up one way or another. So that's my advice. Make smart choices with where you're going. Super, super powerful. That was Lou. It, it takes me to a saying that I often say to look at for people as well now, which is looking at the reality versus the, the promises, right? Because the story that you told, right, about coming in or, or being top biller and all of these things, unfortunately, it's a story not only that I've experienced multiple times, but a few too many of my my peers, right, from underrepresented backgrounds have, have had to tell me time and time again, right? And you start to get to a point where actually you need to have one, a level of clear criteria about the career decisions you're making, why you're making them, and, and what evidence you have that actually that decision is going to stand the test of time. But also looking at the, the reality of what's on the table today. And that has a lot of power versus promises, right? Agnostic of where they come from. And your story is fascinating because in many ways you did trust in word, but you were also coming from a position where you didn't necessarily have much of a choice in a way. And so th there is that balance where sometimes you are staring down the barrel actually of someone, as you described, who just sees you for you, sees your talent for what it is and entrusting you to be able to go out there and execute. And when you find that person, sometimes that is the moment where actually putting that branch stick out to say, I'm going to put my trust in this person because I've seen the evidence, I've seen the track record, and I get the feeling that this person sees me for who I am. You've absolutely got to lean in and walk towards that because, you know, getting these types of opportunities can be life-changing. And as we've seen for, for, for your own career, you've gone out there and now built a, a remarkable career really from, from a challenging start right through the injury and more. So I just want to commend you really, Lou, for being someone who's been able to walk through adversity build a, a record-breaking career that's continuing to grow and scale. And to also thank you for being not only a great inspiration and role model to myself, but I'm sure many other people out there as well. So I just wanted to, to give you that acknowledgement. Alex, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be me without acknowledging the, the building blocks that made that happen. You know, really great family, you know, have an opportunity, great leaders, understanding who they could be in my life. These things don't happen without them. They don't happen without your teams, your individuals. And there's a book called um, you know, Leaders Eat Last. For any aspiring leaders, I want them to go and have a look. I'm not going to spoil it with any sorts. I'm not going to spoil it at all. Just go and go and read it and have a good look at that book because it's something I believe and I take to heart because I do eat last as a leader. Everything about my machine, everything about my team, everything is designed in a way that I make other people's worlds easier. My consultants are great salespeople. I want them to sell. I don't want them worrying about things that's got nothing to do with selling. Unless it's going to make them more developed one way or another, I don't want them worrying about that. So it's my job to build a machine that protects their time. And guess what? They can spend 30, 40% more time selling. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to sell more. The same with your SDRs. You don't want them doing activities and jobs. That's not you know, relevant for them. So I make their life easier. I make their life fun because being a nice SDR is one of the hardest jobs you can ever do in any part of SaaS. So making that easier is a really important you know really important factor same with the researchers i've done the role before the uk sales leader i've done every single job within that team i understand it making their life easier with technology with support and that's what moves forward and all of that comes together then to make me look good and you know what we work hard so looking good sometimes it's a nice thing 
It's a nice thing. But of course, you have to acknowledge everything that goes into making that happen. Absolutely. It says a ton. Now, Lou, I've just got a couple of other things I want to touch on with you. We could have extended this much, much longer. But, you know, one of the penultimate questions is really just curious to understand what really drives you at this stage? You know, when you look ahead at your entire life, your entire career, you know, what's the legacy that you're trying to build brick by brick today? And what's the real driving factors behind the Lou that I'm sitting across from right now? Driving factors have changed over time. When I first started, I just wanted to compete. I wanted to be the best, not in an aggressive way, but when you do sport and you do all these other types of different sports, especially athletics, where it's a one-on-one, one-v-one, you know, or one versus seven, depending on the amount of lanes you've got, I wanted to just be the best and everything would drive my desire to do that. That hasn't really gone away, but then my life changed, you know? I had a son and I look at my son and he's a young black man. And he will go through some of the scenarios and challenges that I've had to go through. So my priority now is ensuring that his life and his goals can be achieved through me making his life easier. The same analogy I said about the team and making their life easier. I've got the same analogy with my son. I have to make I have to make his world easier any way I possibly can. I need to grease his world. I need to make his world where go where it needs to go. And that is now my passion. That is kind of my purpose and what I look to do. And everything filters into making that happen. Of course, with children, he's going to be getting to 15 or 16. He's like, oh, dad, I'm busy. I don't want to see you. That's going to happen. All right. So I might need a new go after that. But genuinely, this is, this is where I'm at. You know, it's about family. It's about friends. It's about, you know, the greater parts of my life. How am I making that better for everyone else around me? And that just drives me. And don't get me wrong. My company's amazing. My team's amazing. You know, we've gone through some, um, gone through some different changes. You know, we've had new investors over the last year or so. The teams were rewarded handsomely for, for that period. And we're looking to do it again in a couple of years. So these are all great factors that's helping us keep on moving and, you know, being great. But what I would love, 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 especially at the end of my career, is for other professionals, black, white, irrelevant, doesn't matter where they're from, what background they're from, just looking at the career of Lewis and saying, he, he tried. He really tried. And he showed some lessons that had never been seen before. He led a different way that's never been done before. And I'm going to take a bit of that and I'm going to do that with my people. One of my biggest things is watching my you know, ex my ex team members move on to management roles or leadership roles of different countries, and they always call me. I speak to every ex employee I've ever had. Call me all the time, text me all the time, tell me all the wonderful things they're doing. I love that because they're spreading the message, they're spreading the love of just treating people the right way to work and succeed. And that's probably one of the legacies I want to leave behind. Absolutely. It's a, a ton of gold in this, Lou. You know, super humbled and grateful that we've been able to have you on. I, I've really just got one last question for you. If you've watched any episodes, then you'll know what's coming. But it's really just to ask you, Lou, if you were talking to that person out there that wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what your best piece of advice would be to that person? Yeah, I've definitely watched some episodes. You're doing, you're doing a good job, so I, I couldn't miss those. My one bit of advice is, you know, you've got to think about clarity, all right? You've got to think about clarity and being very, very clear. Being good, we've already spoken about, you can have the natural talent to do it. The clarity bit comes in because when you want to be great, you need to be very, very clear on what that means to you, all right? And that clarity comes from the communication with yourself, the clarity with the organizations you want to work with, the people you want to be around you, your friends and family that will support you. By having that crystal clear, it will set you on your journey to becoming great. When it's ambiguous, when there's other difficulties or you allow other things, other doubts to kind of seep in, it makes it really difficult. And again, we spoke about my early journey. I definitely pushed and I was fortunate that Joe, you know, picked up the phone to do what he did. But I was very clear on where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do with my career. And because of that, all my steps then fell into place. 
So if you're young in your career, old in your career, it's almost irrelevant. Just be very, very clear what you want to be and where you want to go. And then fingers crossed, the world looks after you. Absolutely. What a way to round off, Lou. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Again, thanks for joining us and uh, hopefully we'll get to part two this at some point. To anyone out there that's been listening, I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. Again, if you're watching this on YouTube, please be sure to smash that like button, comment, share and subscribe with a friend. And if you've listened to this on any of the podcasting platforms, I'd really appreciate a five-star review. Once again, I hope that you've enjoyed and I look forward to seeing you on the next one.